Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually very excited about the guest that we have today because he has a lot of experience uh, when when building and, and, and scaling companies from the ground up, some successes, some failures. But in any case, Todd Olson, welcome to the show today. Thanks Alejandro, it's great to be here. So before you took the leap of faith, uh, Todd, Todd, as an entrepreneur, you were working at Bank of America for seven years. What made you get out of your comfort zone to start your first company? Um, it just sounded more interesting, you know. Um, you know, so full transparency, you know, as far as the Bank of America, I started working when I was 14 years old. Um, of course, I was in high school then. Then I eventually went to college. I continued working through through university. And when I was graduating, it was right around the first dot-com era. This was around the days when Netscape was going public. And, you know, I had only ever considered a life working at the bank, you know, and, and they they were um, offering management tracks. And, um, I mean, it was certainly very attractive uh, when I was young. And, and, and frankly, it was all I ever knew. Um and uh, I met some friends and we started, you know, who, who had, you know, started doing some consulting and looking at starting a company and um, just seemed like the right fit. And uh, so I made the leap, actually, my, my senior year of college, I actually dropped down to a part time student, which my parents weren't incredibly excited about and um, started working. And, um, you know, kind of the rest is history. I got addicted to, um, you know, the whole startup lifestyle and the entrepreneurial lifestyle. So I can't imagine doing anything else right now, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I hear you. I hear you. I know the feeling. And that, and this first company that was say Cerebellum? Correct. Yeah. So what was the business model behind Cerebellum? So when we started the company, it was again, the early days of the internet. So we were doing more consulting, um, projects, trying to bring data and databases to the web. And this is, you know, there were hardly any app servers. Um, a lot of it was was kind of rolling your own infrastructure. So it was pr pretty interesting technology. And you know, through the course of those consulting experiences, we, we discovered how difficult it was getting data on the Internet. So we then conceived of a product idea um, 
And then from there, we started raising some capital to split off a small team from our core consulting business and start building a, a product business adjacent to it. Got it. So how much capital did you raise? You know, it was a long time ago, Alejandro. It was, it was in like the 20 to $30 million range, somewhere in that range. So um, not a ton of money. Got it. I mean, we're talking about the 90s. So, I mean, typically <laughs> at, at, that, at that point, who, who the hell would finance this type of companies? Yeah. So, you know, um, first round was some family and friends. Um, note to anyone else, do not take money from your family. It is not a good idea. Uh, I mean, no one like resents me. Everyone still talks to me, but um, trust me, the amount of stress it takes uh, or adds taking money from your family is just a, a level of stress beyond even I like to endure. So, yeah. so did, did a little bit of that. Um, eventually we did raise professional, professional venture capital, um, and, um, talk, you know, talk to a ton of people. The company was headquartered in Pittsburgh. So it's again, not the Bay area, much more challenging to, to raise area, uh, to raise, raise capital there. Got it. So what ended, what ended happening with the, with the business thought? Um, well, we, we, we almost sold the company. So when I say almost, I mean, we had kind of a, a letter of intent. We had a bridge. We, we had kind of a, what I thought was, you know, pretty much done deal, and then, um, you know, the board was, was lacked confidence in our ability to, uh, you know, uh, successfully negotiate this. So they tr got a banker involved to try to get a better transaction and ultimately kill the deal. So once it killed the deal, we had only a, a small number of months of cash left. Uh, so the company had had some difficult choices at that time. The company decided to to pivot and go back to being a consulting company um, to get to more of a cash flow break even mode. And so that, you know, we basically terminated our product development efforts and um, yeah, ultimately not, not the way you want uh, <laughs> a company to end, but a lot of lessons in that. Yeah, no, I hear you. And look, at the end of the day, you know, this is like the, the journey of being a founder is either you succeed or you learn. I mean, that's, that's really the way it works, but I guess for, for the people that are listening, uh, Todd, because, you know, everyone always talks about the successes and, you know, I know that the, um, the painful experiences are where we learn the most, right? So, so I guess for you, for example, from this experience, how, how do you really recover when life, you know, is literally slapping you across the face with something like this? Well, I, um, vodka helps. I learned, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, in all seriousness, you know, um, I, I think I think the thing that goes through your head and the thing you need to remember is if because um, we were really, really close to an exit. Uh, and that was an exit, and it was at a time where it probably would have been a stock transaction, and the entire stock market crashed shortly thereafter. So, you know, who, who knows, you know, what the ultimate financial outcome would have been for for me or any of the other in, individuals or investors involved. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, but uh, it certainly would have probably been better than, than what did happen. And so I think to myself, wow, if we got this close, if we got this level, I mean, we built a company up to 70 people um, and I was you know, 22, 23. I figured if I can do that, then I could probably do it again. <laughs> I, I had never thought it was possible to do before, right? So once, you're, once you see what's possible, I think it gives you a level of optimism. Like, yeah, I can do that again. Like yeah. I did it once I can do it again. What's still going to stop me. Right. So, um, 
I think that that's the the one thing you take away from this is, is that anything is possible, Got and it. so it gives you a lot of hope um, as you look forward to the future. Got it. Got it. And that's definitely what you did because you did a few years after this as VP of product and and also chief scientist before you really took another step. And and this next time around, it was with Sixth Sense Software. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in between, you know, I got recruited by a company. That's the company that moved me to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, you know, I'll never forget the uh, the v, then VP of sales was selling me on joining. And, and he said, you know, this is a, this is a legit software company. If you want to go work and see how a software company is run, come to this one. And you know what? It was an awesome experience. It also, um, I inherited a team of over 200-ish people in St. Petersburg, Russia. I'd never spent you know, any real time outside the United States. So to manage a Russian team and get all that experience, it was an incredible experience for me. And even though I you know, wasn't the founder, um, I was a member of an executive team, I, I got so much out of that. I think I became a much better executive and frankly, a better entrepreneur. Cause then what, I think the nice thing, and you look at my experience, I kind of ping pong between starting something and then going work for other entrepreneurs. I think you learn a lot when you're working for other entrepreneurs. I mean, you learn yeah. things you, that you're really impressed by what they do. You learn things that, you know, you, you think you may, you know, do a little bit better, frankly, but, but independent of that, I think, I, I know I've gotten so much from the entrepreneurs that I've worked for that I, I think it, it it's made me um, a lot better. And that's amazing that you say that, by the way, Todd, because sometimes, I mean, in many instances or most in instances where when you have been really leading an operation and then all of a sudden you have to work for someone else and you see this mainly when, for example, when these companies end up being successful and they are acquired, then you do the, the vesting period. And founders typically have a really, really difficult uh, time working for other people. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to really get some some learnings out of this. Oh, yeah. And I think we all have to park our egos at the door to some degree and realize, too, if you're on a rocket ship, if you're part of a company that's got a disruptive product or um, you're on an amazing growth trajectory, you know, buckle up and enjoy the ride. You know, I, I and I think you know, it doesn't matter what seat you have on the rocket ship. Just enjoy the rocket yeah. ship. And, you know, I, I think in both the cases that I joined, um, they were both really great businesses and they were a rocket ship. And they, they each had their own unique aspects to them, like unique, unique things I pulled away and learned. And, you know, I said, it, you know, together saw that company I joined here. It, again, I got this international experience that I would have frankly probably never had gotten otherwise in my career. Like when else am I going to set up shop in Russia? I mean, we opened an office in um, Japan while I was there. And I, I, I was part of that, that um, new business opportunity. You know, I just, I grew in so many different ways that, um, you know, it, it was totally worth it. And I, I had no issue working for someone else. I mean, uh, if you always say when, when you're hiring, hire someone that you ultimately could work for. Yeah. But it's disingenuous if you don't actually do it. <laughs> so, Makes sense. So, uh, um, Makes sense. I can confidently say I have done that. And um, yeah, I mean, look, if, if I'm, um, as long as, the, you know, again, it's a great business, great people. Uh, I have no issues with it at all. Got it. So let's talk about your second step as a as a founder. What was what was this idea? How did you come up with it? Yeah. So I said that I was managing people overseas, and I saw that that whole like 
managing development teams, specifically distributed and remote development teams, was really, really difficult, getting a sense for where things are going, what was the status of it. So um, I came, I conceived this idea of, uh, it's called Six Sense Analytics, but really knowing what was going on, knowing the pulse of your development organization. So I'd say it's the early days of um, ALM, or which is app, Application Lifecycle Management, or de- Developer Analytics, to get a sense yeah. for what was going on, you know, productivity, efficiency, where areas of challenge. And also at the time, I decided that I, I wanted to do this on a fully cloud-based platform. And at that time, there weren't any real cloud-based uh, business intelligence platforms. So we, that, that was a big part of our um, intellectual property is actually building one of the you know, early fully multi-tenant cloud-based developer analytics solutions. So, so that was the idea. Um, you know, we actually integrated into things like development environments and we captured all sorts of data. And, you know, actually is a good precursor to, to Pendo. I mean, cause you know, Pendo architecturally does very similar things, but, uh, I definitely cut my teeth on analytics and learned a lot about it. So. Got it. And this company actually had, um, had a better outcome than the first one. So, uh, that was, the company was acquired, right? So no, it was, it either. was, um, but, you know, it was also a tough scenario. You know, we, we um, and you can look back, we sold the company at the end of 2008. Yeah. We, um, we had had um, some changes in, in leadership. And, you know, I was um, the CTO and we had another, you know, one of my partners that um, was CEO. We kind of, you know, split up, so to speak, you know, in, in um, early 2008, which left the company in, in a tough situation. You know, I, I had to you know take over as a CEO, which um, I hadn't done before. And we had only, I don't know, probably six to, to nine months of capital when I took over. And when you have six, nine months of capital and you're, you're, um, you know, you're coming up on an impending financial crisis, you know, it could be better timing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and sure. uh, um, we did end up selling the company. It took a credible amount of work um, to, to get to that transaction. It's a lot of travel. And, um, you know, ultimately it was a good, a good outcome. And I think it was a good outcome because we had a positive attitude coming into it. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, I, I took a, I went from being the CEO of this company to, being a, a product line manager at an, another company. So, you know, I, I was reporting several steps away from the CEO. Frankly, I didn't care. One, I wanted to do right by all the people. So we had obviously a group of people that came over the acquisition. I want to take care of my people. That was first and foremost. And in order to take care of your people, you have to get wins. You have to, you know, and you have to be successful. And it was um, this company, Rally Software's first acquisition, and I also wanted to make their first acquisition a screaming success. You know, I, I wanted them to feel like the, you know, I didn't want them to have buyer's remorse. I wanted it to be a good thing. We're also their first remote office, which had its own set of challenges. And, and I didn't probably even realize those challenges until I started. But, you know, we had to teach a company that had been working within one office to work against multiple. And there was plenty of growing pains, but I also learned a ton. And those, and that, that, those learnings have informed, you know, Pendo and we did our first acquisition here. Uh, you know, a lot of the way we treated that was based on how I felt when I was acquired and I was the first remote office. So uh, all these things come full circle. I found. And and how 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 long did it take from start to finish this uh, acquisition with Riley? Uh, you mean like from the the, the 
from the time you guys discussed, uh, let's say at a board level, hey, you know, like this is the route that uh, that it makes sense to to go after until the deal was actually signed. So it took about six months, and we t- met with a ton of people. We actually had we ultimately came down to two real opportunities. One was more of a merger of equals, where we'd recap the company, and um, you know, so two two private companies coming together. You know, we we had for a while thought that was probably the, the best option because it felt um, most aligned with our vision. But um, challenges we had challenges transacting that, and then um, came you know ended up you know, working out with Rally. Now I will say that for the time we told Rally, yeah, we want to do this. The time we wanted to close, we we, we decided that we really want to get things done by January first, uh, two thousand nine, and. Um, so that was like 30 days. It was all over Christmas. And, you know, rally was typically shut down between Christmas and New Year's. And and I'll say, like, we all we all really busted it just try to get that transaction done. And I'll say, you know, we signed all our paperwork December 31st. I mean, I think the, the last paperwork was signed probably 5 p.m., 6 p.m. So, wow. I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, tremendous amount of execution and great job by their legal team. And, I mean, frankly, their whole leadership team. You know, I called up this, you know, the the CFO and see like, can we make this happen in 30 days? And they're like, yeah, we'll we'll try our best. And and yeah, they they did a phenomenal job. So that's fantastic. And and when you had like this this, I mean, for you, what a, what an unbelievable amount of pressure as well. So you come in as a CEO uh, and you take this on, and and you have this amount left of of runway, you know. So so you did you have a conversation with the board and and you guys, you know, said, okay, should we go via the fundraising journey and try to raise this money that we need to extend runway with the amount of, of, of cash that we have left to survive, or should we go and, and explore and, and doing the M&A uh, process? Did you, did you like make the decision of going through that route or, or what was that? Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, that was the overarching conversation that the challenge was is, you know, um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the original CEO they invested in. So, you know, yeah trying to convince the existing investors to, to pony back up it was difficult. And remember, this was also the time when Sequoia sent out a presentation that was very doom and gloom. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure how many of the listeners recall that 2008 period, but raising capital was, it was one of the hardest times in history. And I know it seems crazy now with all the capital flowing around, but yeah, um, yeah there weren't people, you know, just you know, opening up their pocketbooks to, to write a check back, back then. So, so we, 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 while we we discussed the fundraising route, it became quickly more of a let's see let's see if we can uh, sell this thing. So we 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 went in earnest on that. I candidly didn't spend a lot of time trying to raise capital. Got it, got it. And and you did a little bit the um, the vesting and resting once again, but this time was for four years. Wow, that's a long time. Well, you know. Um, it was a long time, but it flew by, you know, again, a great, as long as I'm learning, picking up new things, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm having fun. So, uh, you know, and I think there, when I joined a company, the, 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 the management team said, look, look, we, we think we have an opportunity to take this company public. And I just never been through that experience. You know, I, I had, I'd worked at uh, a public company when, when together soft that the company before got, got purchased by Borland, but I'd never, taken um a company public and gone through that process as a member of the management team and and, and um i was a bit attracted to that I, I i was excited by the experience i was excited by the challenge i knew it wouldn't be easy and 
uh, I felt like this gave me a good shot to do it. There's no guarantees, of course, when I came into that. I mean, anything could have happened, but I felt like if we worked hard and we executed, then we set ourselves up for it. And, and if the rest of the board and leadership team wanted to do it, then that would be a great experience for me. And that's ultimately what happened. And and that's a lot of what kept me there. It wasn't the only thing that kept me there. You know, I think the company had a great culture. Um, I, I love the product. Um you know, I think there's a variety of things that, that kind of kept me there. But, you know, when you're like people you work with, when you're learning, um, yeah, I think it was a great experience. So um, loved every second I spent there. Cool. And then you, you, you left the business and you were for, for a year taking a look at what's possible. And, that, and at that point, Pendo comes in, into the picture. So what was the process of, of incubating Pendo? Yeah, so when I left, I, I knew... You know, I want to start something. I, I did meet with a few local companies and, you know, some VCs plugged me in a few places. I did a, a brief amount of consulting, but, you know, my passion starting things. And, I, and, and when, when I'm doing nothing, I typically think about the things I can start. And so no different this time. And, um, you know, once I was kind of freed up, I, I came up with the idea for Pendo quite, quite early. And, and the idea was born out of my experience at Rally. So I was the VP of product, I um, craved data on how people are using our product to help inform everything from are we building the right things to how do we price those things and um, how are we doing on you know customer retention in certain areas. So so this data was was really, really valuable, yet shockingly hard to get in many instances. So I came up with this idea when, you know, very, very early and I kind of sat on it. You know, I, I took time. You know, I spent time with my kids, traveled a bunch. Uh, um, I, I felt like jumping into an idea too quickly could be really dangerous. I mean, this is an idea like, like, like that I knew that, you know, once you start something on an idea, you're going to be married to it for a really long time. And and um, so I wanted to feel good about it. So we, I, again, I took some time. I did some consulting. I, I even thought about three or four other ideas just, just to kind of put them up on a whiteboard and say, okay, if we had three ideas, which ones um, will we take? And then also in that time, I started reconnecting with old friends, old entrepreneurs, folks that, you know, could be co-founders and kind of started assembling a, a co-founding team, ultimately the co-founding team that that started Pendo with me. And that was four of you. So that was Eric Bodog, right. Eric Tron, and, and Rahul Jain as well. So so what were you looking in 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 those, let's say, a, the I don't know like strengths or or profiles for people to join you in this journey. Yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, Eric Bodick, you know, he was the co-founder of my uh, first startup, and and so I mean, and he's you know candidly my best friend, so it's pretty easy to, to pick him. I'd always wanted to work with him again. We once um, that the first company um, kind of pivoted, and and I got recruited down here. We hadn't worked since, so we we hadn't worked together since uh geez what is that like 2000 something like that so it had been a lot of years right and and we'd always knew we wanted to again so so that one frankly was pretty easy because i just, just want to work with eric again and um rahul uh it, i had he'd actually helped me sell um six cents to to rally so he was a member of the the vc there and you know what i loved about rahul is he he's um He's just an, an he's amazing um, 
he's got a lot of diverse skills. You can kind of put him on anything and he, he's going to do a good job. So he did our finances early on. So, yeah, he's our utility player, our Swiss army knife, so to speak. And, and I, I think he, you know, when you're starting something from scratch, you need Swiss army knives. <laughs> you know, it's you. really critical, really critical in the early days. And then, then Eric Trone was, he was the, the, the key piece as well. Um, I got introduced to Eric, uh, by a mutual friend who's, who's now actually our chief marketing officer. But um, we had we been told we should meet each other for years, just never had time to. So finally, both of us had time. We met, and um, Eric's just a, you know, it's a fantastic technologist. You know, he's, you know, not, not just a CTO, but it's been VP of engineering and, and even had a, held other roles like product, you know, VP of product marketing. So just a great, um, great technical executive. But I also, when I, when I met Eric, I realized that um, here was someone that could run the technology part of the business. Cause previous to this, I had always started as a CTO or um, you know, I'd always had more technical roles. And in order for me to be the CEO of this company, we needed someone to, to run the tech. It's a full-time job. And, yeah. you know, I, I realized I would get pulled into that area very quickly because of the other three founders, I was, I was definitely most qualified or most technical, right. To, to yeah. run technology. So I think Eric, um, finding he was, you know, key piece in, you know, helping free uh, me up to focus more external, to focus on sales, to focus on the other aspects of the business. Got it. And, and four co-founders is a, is a fair amount of people. I mean, in my opinion, this is the absolute limit in terms of number of co-founders. Otherwise, I think it becomes a little bit tough to manage everyone and all the egos. Uh, but again, you know, in, in many instances, it works, like, for example, in your guys' case. So how did you all decide to, re to divide responsibilities uh, early on? What was that question again? How, how did you guys decide to, to divide the responsibilities uh, yeah, between, yeah. between all of you? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, I guess, you know, um, we typically which is good, had had people with, with some general comfort areas. So, I mean, well, look, I mean, go back to the very early days, you know, for earlier days, if you don't have a product, you don't have anything, right? So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, first year, um, Eric Trone and I, we just, we just coded, you know, I mean, we both did, you know, cause that's, that's what, what was needed by the business. And so both of us were technologies. He was clearly the CTO and, and, you know, I was clearly going to really relinquish all this going forward. But in the early days, I was very much involved. Also, I mean, I, you could argue that because my background was product management, you know, like I, I was the early, um, you know, product person conceiving of what we should build and how we should deliver it and what, what timing. So, you know, uh, I, I did, I, I owned that piece of it and then all go to market and, and things like that. Eric, Eric Bodick was a uh, more of a marketing specialist. So he uh, focused on marketing and building awareness and, and all those pieces. And then again, Rahul was our utility player, our Swiss army knife. And he did everything from finance to ultimately customer service and support, you know, everything else that was left over, he handled. Got it. Got it. Got it. And the, uh, the business model of Pendo, so that the people that are listening, so that they really get it, what, how would you describe it? It's a software as a service business. You know, we, we help companies improve the experience of their applications. So we provide a SaaS solution. We sell it direct. Generally speaking, annualized contracts that they can essentially embed piece of Pendo into their software and then use our 
uh, SaaS application to understand how people are using theirs and then also deliver in-app messages to it. Got it. Got it. So, so at what point, uh, Todd, did you guys decide it was time to, to raise some financing? Yeah, pretty early on. I mean, uh, you know, we conceived the idea and we realized looking at the market, while there wasn't anyone with the exact feature functionality that, that we wanted, there were things that kind of smelled a little bit or, you know, and, and I, I, we felt like this was something where we needed to move quickly. And, and when you when you're in a space where you feel like time to market is critical, raising capital um, is your your best lever because I, mean, I think raising capital, all it does is it accelerates things. You, yeah. you know, um, it's about speed. So we pretty quickly, uh, once we got our founding team together and it settled on the idea, we decided we're going to go out and raise capital. So that would be um, in probably September, October of 2013, we started putting together a seed deck, started talking to folks. It took a little while, I'll be honest. I mean, I think that initial round is probably the hardest round we, you know, you know, um, ever had to, you know, ever had to raise. We, we were new. We were a new team. We hadn't worked together. And um, not I mean Eric Bodek and I had, but the rest of the team hadn't. So I think I think it was challenging. And um, um, but yeah, the, the goal was to get something funded so we could start January first, two thousand fourteen, and, and hire a few people on the development side to help us. Got it. So how much capital have you guys say uh, raised to date that is uh, public? One hundred six million dollars. Got it, and I and I actually saw that that you have some of the most successful investors in 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 startups. So so some of them are Battery Ventures, Park Capital, Salesforce Ventures, Meritech Capital Partners, Firstmark, Sapphire Ventures, or Core Capital Partners, just to to name a few. So how did you meet these guys? Well, yeah. So the last one you mentioned, Core Capital Partners, that that was one of our seed seed checks, and they invested in uh, Six Sense. So. Um, I built a good relationship with Will Dunbar back through through that experience, and um, and you know he, he reached out to me when we started, and he did say, "Look, if you're interested in doing something, you know, I, I I'm in." So um, now that in the seed round, we still have to fill it out. So that I mean, it, it maybe sound easier than it really was, but um, you know, Will Will definitely took the leadership role, and then we we brought more folks around the table. So he he. Um, um, so yeah, that, that's how I, I got to know Will. The rest of the folks, frankly, a lot of it was just, you know, introductions, you know, the, the battery ventures led our series a, and the intro there came from, um, a, a prospect or a future customer they're, they're now a customer of ours, nice. but, uh, a CEO of, um, a company called Trendkite, which is just got acquired by, by Cision. So congrats to them. But the CEO knew me. Um, years past at, at Rally, and he he uh, recommended to the battery folks they should have a conversation with me that what we were doing is pretty interesting. So sure enough, we um, had, I had a cold meeting with with Logan, who works with with Near Jaggerwall, and I didn't think much of the meeting, frankly. I, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, but uh, they started doing some diligence. They started checking up on on other folks, other customers that had been using us, and. They were impressed by the quality of our customer references, and that's kind of what led to the Series A. Got it, got it. And then you you raise your your next round. Yeah, so I mean, well, that that's what led to our Series A, and yeah. um, uh, which was I think announced at a like eleven million dollar round, um, and then you know about 
you know, actually just, just shortly thereafter, the battery folks introduced me to um, one of the, the partners that eventually joined Spark Capital, so Alex Clayton, and he was uh, originally at, at Redpoint. So I met with him while I was at Redpoint. I mean, we had just raised capital. We obviously had, had no need for it, but uh, um, he kept in contact. When he moved to Spark, he was very quick to introduce me to the Spark team, and uh, it kind of started a driver process. Once I, once I felt like we had um, achieved enough in terms of milestones and scaling the business, I, I started you know, actively raising a Series B round. So that, that led to the, the Spark Capital round. At that time, I also was um, connecting with Meritech. And Meritech, um, just for context, was the, I believe, Series E investor in Rally Software. So they were yeah. the last investor at Rally. So I did, I had known Rob since since Rally, you know, years and years ago. Now, they're a traditionally very late-stage investor. So um, while I was... You know, you know, kind of meeting with them in the early days of Pendo, I realized that we were, you know, not even remotely in their sweet spot, right? That we had to, you know, build the company, grow a little bit before it was even worthy of a conversation. But, but once we we got to certain scale, we started having conversations with Meritech, and that ultimately led uh, led to them leading our Series C financing, and and that was one where. Um, you know, candidly, they did preempt it. You know, they, um, we had just raised our B, um, you know, only a quarter had gone by Rob, Rob met with me and, and asked if we would, we would be open to it. And, and honestly, just built based on the strength of our relationship. I said, yeah, I mean, and he's just, you know, a great human being. And I think that's the other piece to think about through all these, while they're all great firms, the individuals, the firms with whom we work are just fantastic people. Um, you know, I, I, I can share, you know, our, our board meeting was last week. It was Thursday. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to you know, had a board dinner afterwards and had a couple folks over to my house. And even my, my wife was commenting just how, how nice, <laughs> you know, nice. our investors are. And, you know, I think these are long-term relationships, um, at least, at least in my mind, they are, and and I think it's just really valuable to pick people that like you wouldn't mind having over your house for a glass of wine. That's, That's a amazing. good measure. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and just out of curiosity, because uh, we were mentioning there that you have folk, folks like uh, like Salesforce. So in your in your mind or in your experience from what you've seen, like what's what's the difference from dealing with let's say the typical VC compared to like a corporate VC? Um, you know, I I think. Uh, in our case, Salesforce invested actually in our Series A. Um, Battery made the introduction. I, I think if you're thinking about a corporate VC, it has to be a strategic fit. So for us, we saw Salesforce, not just the product, but the ecosystem around it as being something very attractive long-term for Pendo. We think there are long-term strategic advantages to being tighter, being closer to Salesforce. Now, just because they're an investor, there's no guarantee of any other business relationships. Like the investment does not mean that we'll definitely, you know, we'll definitely be a customer or definitely be a partner. Now, they do happen to be <laughs> a customer and a partner, but boy, <laughs> I can tell you, it's a lot of work. So I, you right. know, I, I think, um, I think people think that because you take strategic money, that it guarantees. A future business relationship, it does not. Yeah. 
So a tremendous amount of work still needs to occur to make that a reality. Um, now, it does mean that you can get the meetings often. You know, I can leverage the, the, the ventures um, uh, connections to, to get meetings with, with the right people. But again, no, no guarantee. But uh, I think, you know, I mean, conventional wisdom says you, you should be careful about the um, strategic money you take from, from, from corporations because it can um, have an effect on ultimate outcomes, specifically yeah. things like M&A outcomes. So you have to be careful. Um, but uh, for us, you know, we thought, again, there was a higher level strategic purpose uh, for, for bringing them involved. And, and talking about taking money, uh, Todd, I mean, you've seen everything. You've been around the block quite a few times. I mean, for, for those folks as well that are listening. So what, what, how do you see the, um, you know, the, the taking all you need versus taking, a, uh, taking everything that people give you versus taking whatever you need? I mean, how, how do you see that? Um, there's a balance, of course. I mean, I, I think the key thing is... Um, to yeah, most I mean again, what you'll hear from most entrepreneurs is um, to take more than you think you need, because things always go slower than you want. And I, I haven't regretted taking more money, you know, um, uh, throughout Pendo's history. Now, I'll also say that every time you raise capital, it does create a set of expectations, right? So be prepared for the expectations your raise is setting you up for. And the other way to look at it is, so typically the amount you raised could have some, uh, usually has some impact on the, the post-money valuation, right? And everyone talks about their post-money. Everyone, like, again, the higher the post-money, the, the better, et cetera. But um, you need to be able to clear that that post-money valuation ultimately. So what I mean by that is, you know, you, you, whether it's an M&A transaction or an IPO or another financing event, you have to usually go higher. You do not want to take a down round. So the way I always think about it is, is this a valuation that I could grow my business into? Is it a little bit aggressive that um, it, it's a good deal and I feel like there's a lot of upside and I think it's valued in the company well, but, but not too crazy? What you don't want to do is do anything that you consider like absolutely crazy, like that that you can't withstand your market conditions or some change, right? So I think in every single instance, we've raised around what I would consider you know good amounts, good valuations. You know, some people at the time probably thought that they were a little um, crazy, but you know, I never thought they were crazy. Um, because we've earned into them every single solitary time, you know, it just, just takes a little time. So we eventually catch up to them in terms of uh, getting our revenue there. So, so that, I don't know if that helps, but that's kind of how I think through these things. Got it. And going back to Pendo, how many employees do you guys have now? Uh, 296 as of this Got morning. It. And I, and I think I, I read somewhere that you guys are gearing up to hire um, a, a big amount of people. They, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know where you guys are in terms of thinking about that. I already was 600, but what I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the things that you consider when you scale a team so fast? Well, I mean, you're not just hiring to a spreadsheet. I think that's super important. So um, the quality needs to be there. Um, it still needs to be a critical position to hire. So, yeah, we announced that we're going to hire 590 or you know, essentially 600 people over the next five years. This is based on our, our you know, our, our standard operating plan, um, you know. 
um, but I think it's really the key to maintain quality. So, you know, we, we do have a slightly longer interview hiring process than most companies. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it being a little hard and a little time consuming. I know some people complain about it, but uh, I'm not here just to hit some hiring goal in a spreadsheet. We're here to hire amazing human beings. We need to onboard them successfully. Um, that's kind of how I think through this. And, and again, yeah, if you, if your organization can't onboard people where they come in and people are like lost after a few weeks, well, you shouldn't, you should slow down. Right. But, um, you know, and, and we have a number of ways to measure the success of onboarding, whether it's in sales. Of course, that's probably the easiest thing to measure in general. People are kind of hitting their numbers. Uh, but even on the engineering side, people delivering code to production, you know, exactly. shortly after they get there. I mean, these, these are things that we should be seeing. If that can't happen, then there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess talking about, you know, the impact and, you know, the onboarding and all of that. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about really culture. So in, in your mind and having been around the block, you know, as, we, as we've been discussing, what are, from what you've seen and what you have experienced, the, the real factors that determine the culture of, of the business? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, a couple things. I mean, yeah, I already talked about quality of people. So I always say people are the, the raw ingredients in culture. So they get the people right and, and the, the, it helps the culture. So that's number one. Number two is... Uh, big believer in, in not just having values, but being explicit about how you live those values. So we do a lot of work um, to reinforce how our values guide our decision-making, you know, yeah. and, and, um, and this is a lot of storytelling, but, but we've been focusing on this as a business for a while. You know, we, we've got one core value called brutal honesty. And, and um, in a few years ago, we, we saw, some people abusing that value, right? right? And uh, so instead of eliminating the value or, or just ignoring it, we started telling stories every other week at our town halls, of, town halls about how people are living brutal honesty. And people would get up and talk about it. And, and you know, people started realizing what the value meant when they heard more stories about how it was being lived. And that to me is critical. It's, it's, um, and that's, that, that's basically a, a measure of authenticity. If you have a set of values that you aren't living or can't describe how you're living it, they're probably useless. They're not adding value. So make sure that you, you focus on what they are and, and again, how you're, how you're um, living them on a day-to-day -day basis. I love it. I love it. And, and obviously you guys are based out of uh, North Carolina and, you know, being out of, New York City or, or the Bay Area? I mean, it must be challenging to really, you know, be in the hyper growth uh, arena when building a business. So what, what were some of those challenges that you've, that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, the, the first challenge going back to is the raising capital. It just doesn't exist here. That, I mean, uh, so all of our capital pretty much came from I'm outside the area um, minus about, a, you know, minus one of our seed firms, uh, Idea Fund Partners, who has been a great partner, but they're just small fund, right? So um, so raising capital is number one. And then, you know, I think talent, you know, there, there, there are pros and cons of being here. I wouldn't say it's all bad. I wouldn't say it's all good. You know, it, what's good is a lot of great universities. And in some cases, I mean, in some ways you can say now we're, we're a bigger fish in a small pond. So we get a disproportionate number of 
folks applying, we, we average 5,000 applicants a quarter, just to give you a, a sense. So it's pretty significant numbers. But um, the, the negative side is that there, there are very few people that are very senior. And senior, like when I say senior, I mean having the experience that is specific to, you know, a high growth SaaS company, right? Most of those folks are, are well, frankly, they're in the Bay Area. Some are in, you know, Boston, New York City. So we've had a, to be more flexible and more accommodating. And um, we've also had to work hard to move people here. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so this is a question that I always ask guests that, that are on the DealMakers show. And, and I wanted to ask you this same question as well, Todd. So if you could go back to the past and give yourself advice before you were launching, let's say, your, your first business, Cerebellum, with, with everything that you know now, what, what, what advice would you give yourself and why? Uh, well, geez. So going back to Cerebellum, I mean, I, I think I did not understand, I mean, the whole notion of product market fit and what it meant to have product market fit until I got to, to you know, Rally Software, so just before I started Pendo. So like the Lean Startup book hadn't been written. Um, uh, I hadn't discovered Steve Blank's book, Four Steps to the Epiphany. Um, I, I think those books really changed my perspective on, the, on how you start a business and how you get product market fit. That fundamentally was the problem at both Cerebellum Software and Success. Both suffered from that same problem. If I had read those books, I think both companies would have gone potentially, potentially differently. Um, and then the other big piece of it is just um, focus on getting the highest quality investors around the table. I, I think one of the things that's been unique about Pendo is, is at least from my perspective, is just the quality of investors. You know, and and like they are. A member of your team. It's it's not just whoever you can get money from. I think a lot of entrepreneurs think, oh, it's just money. They don't really add any value. It doesn't really matter. Money's money. I've heard that quite a bit. I probably said that when I was that age. Um, money is not money. Trust me. You know there is a huge, huge difference, and you want people that are good, balanced voices around the table. Those two things that. Biggest takeaways that, you know, that if I could inform a younger self that I think would be valuable. Got it. Got it. That's fantastic. Todd. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, well, you can either do Twitter. So I'm um, at T Olson, T-O-L-S-O-N. Um, or uh, feel free to just hit me up on email. So Todd, T-O-D-D at pendo.io. Wonderful. Well, Todd, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. Appreciate it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.